All right, everyone's found First Thessalonians 1, 1, okay, I hope. I'm just going to read this to us. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So as you can tell by their reading this morning, today marks the beginning of a new sermon series I've been promising over the last number of weeks, and that's Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Now, before we begin, I just want to let you know that today's sermon will be an overview of the whole letter, an introduction so we get familiar with the content of the letter. Now, in lieu of the baptism service that's going to be next week, um, we'll do the intro this week, and then on October 1st, we'll start the letter in fullness, and we will run it right through to Christmas time, and I should be able to complete the entire letter by Christmas, Lord willing. So I've made the sermon in an outline format uh, with just answering questions. Here's the outline for today. The questions will be as follows. So where was Thessalonica? How did the church get established there? Who wrote the letter and why was it written? How was the letter structured in terms of the outline? And what are we to learn? The most important question, what are we to learn? So let's look at where was Thessalonica? The book is titled Thessalonians, but the name of the city in which these believers were found was Thessalonica. It'd be like saying to us today, uh, what province are you from? I'm from Alberta. Well, who are you? I'm, I'm an Albertan, or I'm, you know what I mean? Like Albertans as opposed to Alberta. And so they were they were Thessalonians from Thessalonica. Now, this was a port city, so a very important commercial center, and were located in what was then Macedonia, which would be today Greece. So Greece and Macedonia are syn synonymous with one another. The city exists today. You can visit Thessalonica, and it's quite beautiful, being a port city. And you can see the old buildings mixed with the new architecture. Now, this is the second largest city in Greece next to Athens. And the population of Thessalonica is just over 1 million people today. So it's about the equivalent to Edmonton in terms of population. So how did the church get established? Really, you can turn your Bibles to Acts 17, or you can follow along in the PowerPoint here this morning. But we'll read this together. Uh, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As it was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Now you see from the book of Acts that the Christian community in the Thessalonica began through Paul's involvement in the synagogue. Now what's a synagogue? Well, it was not as big as the temple. They weren't as big as the temple. They were little buildings, little smaller buildings that Jewish people met in, in their communities. Now, I've been to a synagogue or two in Israel and seen some excavations of archaeological finds. And the synagogues are literally about the size of the RPAC upstairs in here. 
So to walk into a Jewish synagogue was about the same size as it would be in here. And so every in the cities, they would have multiple synagogues and each sort of neighborhood would go to their local synagogue. In Thessalonica, it appears like there's only one because it says in Acts 17 that they went to the synagogue and a synagogue, okay? So Paul is, uh, maybe it's a smaller Jewish community at this point. So that's basically Paul uh, going into the synagogues. Now, being a Jew, he was able to do that. He had permission to walk in, and he clearly engaged them in the Old Testament scriptures, proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he used the Old Testament prophecies that would have spoken about where he was born, that he was to suffer a particular way, and that Jesus fulfilled these things. So the Christian community, largely in part, emerged from the synagogue, and it was a diverse group. You see here that there were some, uh, some of the Jews were persuaded, but not all. So a small portion of Jews, but a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So if you remember, Cornelius was a God-fearer. So these people were sympathetic to Judaism, but they wouldn't have gone all the way. They wouldn't have been circumcised. So a proselyte would have observed the Mosaic law and be circumcised. A God-fearer would have not gone through circumcision but it would have been sympathetic to the Jewish way of life. So that's a God fear. That's Cornelius. So they're the large number. They're the majority of the church. And then quite a few prominent women, prominent women in the society there. Now, what's important for this is that at first read, you might think, well, that's how the church got started. And that's the only people that were in the church. Well, we're going to find out that's not the case. But before we get there, let me read what happened next in Acts. So the synagogue has been entered, and there's been some conversions. This is what happens next. Other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into a turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Now, this is important because if all we had was the Acts account, you would come to two conclusions from everything we've read. Number one, you would have believed that the majority of the church that was founded there were God-fearing Greeks. Because that's the large number of God-fearing Greeks came to faith. And they emerged in the synagogue. The second thing you'd believe is that Paul and Silas's length of stay in Thessalonica was only two to three weeks. And the reason we'd say that is because notice that here, as soon as it was night, they were sent away to Berea because of the persecution. But previously, notice that Paul went to the synagogue and for three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. So what's a Sabbath? It's Friday night at six. It's a Saturday night at six. It's 24 hours. Three Sabbaths, maximum. He could be there for 21 days, but he could be there as short as two weeks. Because if he showed up on a Thursday night, you could easily hit three Sabbaths and make it only about 15 days. So Paul's there for two to three weeks, according to Luke's account. 
But here's the issue. When you read First Thessalonians, you get a way bigger picture than this. There's a lot more going on. And so I want you to look at me here with one important factor. And that is that the length of stay was far, far exceeded two to three weeks. And the, the majority of Christians didn't actually emerge probably from the synagogue. Okay, so let's look at the, uh, the, the, the um, issue of uh, who, who, was, who made up the church. The description of the Christians in Paul's letter in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 1 and verse 9, is simply this. It says that they themselves reported about us what kind of a reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The description of the church is they've turned from idols to serve a new God. In response to Paul's preaching, God-fearing Greeks don't worship idols. Cornelius didn't worship idols. They worship the God of Israel. So when he shows up into Thessalonica, Luke's recording what happened in the synagogues. But Paul gives you a bigger picture here. The majority of the church, how he defines them, are Gentile converts, people that weren't God-fearing Greeks, but local citizens. We can authenticate this by the length of stay. It went more than two to three weeks in Thessalonica. Two key verses help us with this. Number one, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 9, Paul, Paul says this. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our own lives, because you become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day, so as not to be a burden of any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This is the first key here, that this relationship was really, really deep. And for them to work night and day amongst them, to be tent-making, probably, amongst them, and, and earning their own keep shows that they must have been there for much more than two to three weeks. Because Luke highlights the synagogue ministry. It seems like they're, they're reasoning, they're, that's their full-time job is being in the synagogues. Here he's saying, we work night and day amongst you, and the fond affection they have one another seems to extend way more, it seems to be far greater than a two to three period would allow for. But probably the key, the most critical verse actually is found in Philippians 4, 16. This is what, this is what Paul says in, in revisiting his time in Thessalonica. When I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Now, the trip from Thessalonica to where Philippi was is 160 kilometers. Let's say you average 20 kilometers a day. It takes you eight days to get there and then eight days back. So like, you know, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, five days. If he's only there for two to three weeks, it doesn't make sense that these guys would come, give him aid, then turn around and come back right away to give him aid again. They obviously were there for months ministering for him to receive a gift more than once. And so this is critical in the whole understanding of Paul's length of stay there, his relationship to them, and also where the majority of Christians would have emerged from. So who wrote it and why was it written? Well, who wrote it is clear in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus 
referred to as Silas a lot in the NLT, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Obviously, these are Paul's traveling companions, but Paul is the primary author in recorded in, in writing this letter, because in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says this, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. So Paul's representing the, the, the trio here, and he's the one who will be the primary writer of this letter. Now, why was it written? This is important. Why was it written? Well, we know that in Acts, the church was under severe persecution. The Christians, uh, it, they, there was a mob that went after Jason and the Christians in Jason's house. We see Paul and Silas having to flee because of the uh, persecution. So Paul has now had to leave really early into the ministry. In his absence, in his absence, he's extremely worried about the fate of those he left behind. And he wondered, had they succumbed to the pressures of the culture and abandoned the faith in Jesus? Was the cost just too high? And remember, in those days, there's no social media, so you can't get information right away as to how our people are doing. So he finds, he sends Timothy, he sends Timothy to find out how they're doing. And he, Timothy comes back with a glowing report. Let's read verses six to nine together, or 10, even, yeah, 10. Chapter three, verse six to 10. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we are comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which you have all the joy which we have rejoiced before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So I love this. Now that Timothy has come to, to us and brought a report, we now give God thanks for what's happened in you. So this letter was occasioned in response to Timothy's report that the Thessalonians had persevered in the midst of suffering. He also used then this opportunity to give them further instruction as to matters in which he wanted them to know about and how to live out their lives. So, how is the letter structured? Really, it's fairly simple. I call them panels, if you will, two sides of a shirt. Um, first of all, chapters 1 to 3 is structured this way. It's really a celebration of their faithfulness to Christ Jesus. So, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see we always give thanks to God for all of you. We think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope we have because of your because of our Lord. In 3.6, he says, Timothy has now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. So throughout the letter, in the first three chapters, there's a celebration as to their faithfulness and commitment to Jesus. Panel 2, then, verses chapters 4 and 5, is really a challenge to continued faithfulness in Christ. So you've begun well. Here's some challenges to you. To you. A challenge to you to continue in the grace of God. Be faithful to him. And so in 4.1, 1, 
he says, finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you, and he gives a list of instruction. Chapter 5, 1, but we request of you, brethren, that you, and again, we have this continued exhortation to faithfulness. But here's the main thing we want to pick up from this letter. What are we to learn? What are the themes in this letter? The first one would be that following Jesus will produce a counter-cultural way of life, which will often lead to persecution in times of testing. Following Jesus will produce a countercultural way of life that can lead to persecution and times of testing. We saw that in Acts chapter 17. Look at me now in 1 Thessalonians. Read this with me in one in chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Thessalonians are like Paul and Silas and Timothy. They've become imitators of the Lord in suffering. In chapter 2, in verse 14, Paul continues to speak about this. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out. And in 3.3, he makes this comment. Um, he says, I hope that no one would be disturbed by the afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. So here's the point of Thessalonica and the letter. Following Jesus back then came at a high cost. They faced a lot of opposition from the culture as a result of their faith in the Lord. Now, you remember when we did Revelation, this was the case for the churches in Revelation as well. They had turned from idolatry, and anyone who had claimed to be allegiant to the Roman, um, to the Lord over and above the Roman emperor would put themselves in jeopardy. You could lose your job. You could receive ridicule and slander. You could be imprisoned. In extreme cases, you could be martyred. Well, these believers had done this very thing. In 1 Thessalonians 1 through 9, it said they turned from idolatry. Idolatry in those days accompanied sexual immorality. And so they'd, they'd given their bodies to the Lord different than the culture. They viewed sexuality differently. They, their religious beliefs had changed. It was all about Jesus, not the Roman Empire, not about the idols in the streets. And so it came at a high cost. Now, what's, imp what's really imp uh, important is that it's incredible how much Okotoks is so much like the Thessalonican culture. Idolatry, we used to think of idolatry as something that was kind of like not really known around here. It was more like, you know, the, the typical Christian response. Well, if you have um, greed in your life, that's an idol. Or if you love your husband more than God, that's an idol. That's how we've always talked you realize that idolatry is well-rooted uh, and grounded in our culture again. What's the big Buddha 
out here on the lawn across the, the street from us. Actually, I'm pointing the wrong way, am I? No, I am pointing the right way, yeah. Right here, three doors down, there's a statue of Satan on the guy's doorstep. You go to the bookstore in town, it's got, you walk in the front door and the, on the shelf, it's all about all the spells that you can learn to um, become like a witch and all about the how you can read astrology signs. You go into other stores, there's crystals, there's feathers, there's beads. It goes on and on and on. The New Age movement has gripped our town and idolatry is not hidden anymore. It's in the shops. It's on people's tattoos. It's on their necks around their chains and their necklaces on their rings. How about sexual morality? Look at all the changes in how we view God's design for marriage and, sex, and the sexual relationship to be reserved between a man and woman in a marriage bed. Does Okotoks hold that in high regard? We don't even hold man and woman as distinct in high regard. crazy how much Okotoks looks a lot like Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. And so this is really important because we're so comfortable with our faith bubble-wrapped, bubble-wrapped in this sort of freedom of life and protection. But one thing we can learn from these Thessalonicans is that following Jesus as Lord will produce a counterculture way of life that may lead to persecution. In times of testing. And so this letter has a lot to say to us because as this becomes a bigger reality for us, as, as the time goes on, these words that will leap off the page will become our banners by which we live our lives. Never more has Thessalonica had to speak to our culture than now. What's another thing we can pick up from the letter? Our response to cultural opposition is not to one of retaliation, but love for one another and a continued life of holiness. Those of you who are justice warriors out there are not going to like that teaching from Jesus. But that's the reality. Look at chapter 5 and verse 15. See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Even your persecutors? Yeah, for all people. How about in the area of love? Look at chapter 1 and verse 3. Oh, I'll start at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of God and our Father. So they were known for being laborious in their love for one another. And in terms of their walk of holiness, 
chapter 2, verse 12, is a great verse. He makes the comment here after he's encouraging them. He says, I implore you as a father with his own children that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So again, as the heat rises, our, our response needs to be one that is supported by the Apostle Paul and ultimately the Lord Jesus. You will be tempted to retaliate no different than I will be. You'll be tempted to not live a life of holiness in response and to not love appropriately. But again, Paul's letter to Thessalonica has a lot to say to us in our culture. We can also learn that our motivation to persevere comes from our hope in Jesus' future return and reign. Look at all the references that Paul gives speaking about the return of Christ. Our faith and our hope and our ability to persevere needs to be anchored in the fact that this life is temporary and that we have a future king coming to redeem us. I want to just read to you from chapter 5 and verse 23. This is the end of the letter. And here's what Paul says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. So the anchoring of perseverance is knowing that Christ is coming back to gather us together to be with him, at which point we'll receive the resurrected body. So again, to persevere then, it's really not to focus on the present and to focus on the realities around us, but on the future and what the Lord has for us. And we'll speak more to that later on. Another thing we can learn from Thessalonica is uh, the character traits found in godly leadership. Character traits found in godly leadership. I want to just read to you from chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our own authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. I love this here. He didn't come looking for money. Money was not the goal of their leadership to make to get wealthy to be provided for. And the I love the family language. I came to you like a, a mother tenderly caring for her own children. This is the apostle Paul, the head cheese, if you will, in God's church. And he's like, uh, yeah, my number one quality is that I'm a mom amongst children and being gentle with you and being caring for you. Paul reminds us of the essence of leadership. We don't need to be flexing our authority and to be domineering, not in it for the money. 
but in one, like in three words, humble, loving service. The essence of godly leadership, humble, loving service. We also can learn from Thessalonica and Acts combined strategies of how to influence other words to others towards faith in Christ. Strategies of how to influence others. So in Acts 17, Paul goes into a synagogue where the scriptures are known. So he's ministering to people that have a familiarity with the Bible. And so he says, let's have a Bible study about... Uh, Faith matters, and let's chat about what you know and how I can point you to Jesus through what you already know. Pretty cool evangelistic strategy. <laughs> Look for those opportunities with people in your own circles. But my favorite is probably actually here in chapter 2. He says, having an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our own lives. So what's Paul's other strategy? I'm going to relationally care for the non-believers in my life and love them and speak to them about truth and things, but I'm going to build a relationship, invest in that relationship like a mom would over her children, like a father would over her son or his daughters. So there's this relational investment. Imagine, imagine every single family in here, let's actually make it even more so, individual apart from your family even, every adult in here was to take one non-believing person that they're really close to and say, I'm going to make that, fam that person my investment for the year. That's the person I'm going to invest in for the entire year. I'm going to impart not only the gospel, but my life as well. What do you think the Lord could potentially do with that? In terms of ministering to people. And even if they didn't come to our church, they thought, you know what? There's validity to this Christian life. I can see it in the way you talk and the way you live. I want to know more about this Jesus. Every single one of here, us in here, has this potential role to play in building God's kingdom. So there's lots to learn from the Apostle Paul. Again, listen to these words. I did not only give you, in part, the gospel, but my life. He, just, he makes them distinct from one another. So there's some time of teaching and time of talking, but there's some time of just fun and, and relational building. Paul was in their midst and just mingling with these guys, as well as Silas and Timothy. Pretty neat. More on that later. Okay. Details in regards to the Lord's return and our resurrection. Huge section in chapter 4, and 2 Thessalonians has a huge section in chapter 2. The Thessalonians uh, had a lot going on in terms of uh, their interest in this subject matter. We'll get into why later. And my goal in this whole section is actually to try to um, clear up what I believe are many misunderstandings about the, the second coming of Christ. And uh, 
it's a theological hot topic. It divides Christians into different beliefs, but I'm going to do my best with the Holy Spirit's guidance to make this simple to understand and to just show you like what I believe the truth actually is in the scriptures. And so if we are, even if we're divided amongst ourselves, that by the time the sermon series is done, we're united in how we understand the Lord's return. And finally, the last thing we can learn is a warning against idleness. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 and 12. Actually, if I read there, you will be, uh, oh yeah, here it is. He says, make your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and work with your hands. Clearly, there were, and Second Thessalonians chapter 3 speaks to this as well. Clearly, there were people in the church who are capable of work. We're not talking about people who were sick or were, say, like, um, uh, had sort of like debilitating things going on where they're unable to work. We're talking about able-bodied Christians who, for whatever reasons, had chosen just to remain idle and not to do anything with their hands when they had the capability of providing for themselves. Now, we're going to get into the reasons why um, they may have become idle in the first place when they're capable, but the Lord is really cares about this. He really wants us to know that he wants to see people who are capable not to being, being idle, but to working and being diligent in their work. And man, does that ever speak to our time today, doesn't it? <laughs> As the government hands out more and more and more money, encouraging people to take these, these lump sums so they can't do it, so they don't have to really work with their own hands. Again, Thessalonians speaks to our culture. We're going to be different in Genesis House with the way we approach our children, but the way the culture is going is we're raising youth without strong work ethics that are afraid of hard work that will never see a callus on their palm. That's not the way we're going to raise our children here. And it's not the way we are raising our children here. But again, this speaks very much to our culture. And uh, yeah, so again, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. And Thessalonica and the city there has a lot to teach us. So in conclusion then, as you can see, um, these scriptures are very applicable to what we have today and what we're going to face. And so I look forward to what's going to happen between October and December as the Lord uh, changes our hearts and encourages us and convicts us where necessary and challenges us. Lord, we give you thanks for today. Thank you that um, we were able to uh, sing you praises, have multiple opportunities through the service to praise you and give you thanks that we were able to bless Stephanie and thank her for her service, that your word has already got people thinking differently before they walked in here. And thank you, Lord, that you, your Holy Spirit is a power source, that you, through the gospel message, there's power in the words of the gospel, but there's also power in the way you supernaturally move in people's lives, how you heal, how you redeem emotionally, spiritually, physically, Lord. 
and just that you are a God who still acts today, that you're not some, you're not like the, the, the gods in, um, when Elijah challenged them at Mount Carmel, where you're asleep, where you don't speak, Lord, you are fully awake and you fully speak to us, Lord. Help us to recognize your voice and to act on it and to demonstrate your Holy Spirit's power in this world. We look forward to what you're going to teach us through this letter. And thank you that what was written 2,000 years ago has application to us today. So this is not some uh, old book that we can't trust, but one that imparts life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.